Hello, and welcome to episode 100 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Van Jones about his advocacy for reform of our criminal punishment system. Van Jones is a U.S. media personality, the founder of multiple social enterprises and a change maker. He's a three-time New York Times bestselling author and hosts two shows on CNN, The Van Jones Show and The Redemption Project. He is the host of CNN's Incarceration, Inc. podcast. In 2013-2014, Van was co-host of CNN Crossfire along with Newt Gingrich. He later hosted a series of special events on, on CNN called The Messy Truth. Van has co-founded a series of social enterprises, including the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, ColorOfChange.org, GreenForAll.org, Rebuild the Dream, and the Dream Corps. Today, Van is also a a board member of the Reform Alliance, an initiative founded by Jay-Z, Meek Mill, and six billionaires to transform the criminal justice system. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Van Jones, and thanks for being my guest on the 100th episode of the podcast. Well, it's an honor, and um, I just appreciate everything that you do and that you stand for. Um, I think you've done everything you can to use your your voice and, and, and your reach to stick up for people who you don't have a voice. So I appreciate you, brother. Thanks so much, Van. Uh, I always ask the same first question, and it's kind of the comic book origin story question. And since I know a little bit about you and I know you're a fan of comics, you know what I mean by that. How did you get from wherever you started in life to where you are on television, creating social enterprise and, and, and working to reimagine our criminal justice system? You know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first time anyone said that. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I, I, uh, I mean, I have my my pat answers, I guess that, um, you know, I get interviewed a lot and I usually give, but, um, you know, it's a bit of a mystery. I think, you know, how anybody winds up doing anything. I, I know that when I was a child, I was super sensitive, super nerdy, um, I used to, you know, we lived out in essentially the, the, the boonies on the edge of a small town. So, you know, you'd often see, you know, stray animals or, or, or uh, animals, you know, hit in the side of the road. And I would always get upset about it or want to take them home and, you know, just all kinds of stuff like that. So I've always been, I think, an especially sensitive and, and compassionate person, even as a kid. Um, I think being a bully magnet, uh, which I definitely was growing up. Um, I mean, I made Urkel look cool. <laughs> was growing up. Uh, so, you know, I, I developed a lot of empathy and sympathy for the underdog. Um, and I, uh, I mean, I don't know. So it just, it just seemed to me that, you know, when I got older, if I could do something to help people, if I could do something to fight back, I mean, I was a comic book nerd. I don't know, I guess maybe fantasies of, you know, superhero-ness. I don't know, man, but um, you know, for whatever reason, the law school never had any um, uh, interest in being a corporate lawyer or anything like that. Wanted to right wrongs and stick up for little folks and take on, you know, left wing causes. And graduated from Yale Law School in '93 and moved to the Bay Area, uh, mainly because of a young woman I was dating at the time, even though she dumped me a few weeks later. And um, you know, I, I started suing cops or and coordinating litigation against police departments in the Bay Area and trying to close prisons. And, you know, uh, I spent 10 or 15 years in the Bay Area 
uh, taken on some of the toughest causes and kind of accidentally wound up in the White House and on national television. But, um, you know, my my origin story has a lot more to do with um, left wing grassroots uh, protest politics and, and, and suing uh, suing cities for killing black folks uh, than it has to do with, uh, you know, cable cable news. Was there a, a time where, you know, you remember that kind of starting for you, the protest politics end of it, like where, where you first uh, kind of got involved in that? When I was in college, you know, I was in college in the late 80s. And so, you know, AIDS was a big issue, anti-apartheid, free Nelson Mandela. And so even though I was a, a, going to school in the South, um, you know, my girlfriend at the time was a Black Student Alliance president at Vanderbilt University. I went to the University of Tennessee at Martin whatever reason, you know, I got involved in some of those causes. I mean, of course, in those days, you know, all you had to do was kind of put a bumper sticker on your car and (laughs) put a one rally and and you were an activist. I mean, there was no social media and there wasn't a lot to do, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I cared a lot about some of these issues. I was a young reporter uh, as a, as a college student, as a college journalist and, um, got exposed to a bunch of stuff, but, um, there's no one big moment that's the thing is like when I was uh, in kindergarten, I remember my um, kindergarten teacher crying because uh, a student asked a question about Bobby Kennedy. And and I know the hell Bobby Kennedy was, but she started crying and it, and it really stuck in my head because I didn't even know that grown people could cry. Because you know, grown people are always telling you when you're a kid, stop crying, stop crying. It's almost like, well, you know, they never cry. But to see a grown person cry was a big shock to the whole kindergarten class. And um and it had a big impact on me, you know, and I, I love Bobby Kennedy to this day. But did the other 19 kids in that kindergarten class have the same reaction to it? No. So I don't know. Uh, I don't have a big origin story. I've always been a nerd. I've always cared about politics. I've always wanted to do what I'm doing. And now I'm in my 50s and I still don't have a good answer. That's <laughs> still a pretty good answer, though. Uh, it's a pretty good bridge. You know, I mean, I, I like what you said there about, uh, you know, you know, adults crying. Cause I, I definitely remember growing up and being told all the time never to cry. And, uh, you know, it definitely, uh, does have a really big impact and is it sort of good bridge to, uh, we just celebrated the day of empathy, which is something you helped create. And, uh, I've been personally part of every single day of empathy here in Michigan. Uh, what can you tell us about kind of where that came from and where that started? You know, I helped to found something called the dream core, which you mentioned, kind of a legacy organization for Rebuild the Dream, which uh, still exists as a C4, but our, our C3, we changed to the Dream Corps a few years back. And Jessica Jackson uh, was working with me there, and we had just tried to restart some criminal justice work. I'd done criminal justice work, um, as I told you, police reform, criminal justice, all that stuff, um, and um, it had moved away from that and was doing a lot more kind of climate solutions, what we call green jobs, not jails, trying to get urban youth jobs in the solar industry and organic food and industry and that kind of thing. And um, it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, important to me to get back to some of the direct work on criminal justice. But what I had, had learned and discovered, having worked in the Obama White House for a while, um, having worked, started working at CNN, was the importance of, of getting Republicans and Democrats to work together. That especially on an is- issue like criminal justice reform, that there was so much fear and so much you know racial bias and so much uh, such a toxic bipartisan history of throwing people uh, who were in trouble with the justice system under the bus, scoring points, 
She really had to get both parties on board. You know, it took both parties to get us in the situation. It's going to take both parties to get us out. And because I worked at CNN, I knew a bunch of Republicans because at that time, especially, we really were kind of, you know, Republicans and, and Democrats you know, more or less equally balanced. Um, and I met Newt, Newt Gingrich and and a bunch of other people. I knew that they had some interest and some openness to the question of criminal justice reform from the right you know, from the idea of you're wasting a bunch of money, uh, you have a big unaccountable government bureaucracy in the prison system, uh, you know, gobbling up liberties, gobbling up money, no accountability, uh, no sense of, of redemption, uh, which a lot of people on the religious right really care about. And I saw an, an opening, an opportunity to get something done. But I knew that we, ha- we couldn't start with the head. We're going to have to start with the heart. And so I was talking to Jessica about it. And um, that we need to have like a national day of empathy where we just, without any legislation, without you got to sign this bill tomorrow or we're going to protest against you or whatever it is, just go to the state capitals um, and and bring stories. And uh, I'd even want to bring some virtual reality and and digital media and just like really just work on on getting the heart in the right place for, for, for lawmakers. I didn't know if it's going to happen in 30 years or 10 years or five years. I certainly didn't think, didn't think it was going to happen that year, but you know, <laughs> Jessica Jackson is a, a real go getter. And, um, and I think she thought it was all supposed to happen right away. Um, so she was trying to get it going. And, and then she, she double checked. She said, you know, where do you want this to happen? I said, I don't know, all 50 States. Again, I'm thinking years from now. <laughs> and so she goes out, I think the first year you, I think the first year you guys did like 30 or 40 States. Um, and, um, which, you know, technically, I guess, is impossible. But uh, what we figured out pretty quickly was, you know, some of the people who had come around the Dream Corps in our Cut 50 campaign, they were so new to all this stuff. They didn't really know uh, what was possible, what was impossible, how long stuff was supposed to take. And so they just ran out there and did all kind of stuff, um, including <laughs> the, the Day of Empathy, which has now become, you know, kind of an institution. But it wasn't like... Um, you know, we went and got a big grant from the Ford Foundation or from Pepsi and, you know, had some, you know, master plan. Like a lot of things at the Dream Corps, it was just, uh, you know, the Dream Corps kind of creates a permission structure for people to do crazy stuff in the name of justice, um, creative stuff, you know, working with celebrities, working with grassroots, working with, you know, uh, elected officials, working with technology people, whatever. Um, and I, I love the the dream core. I'm so proud of it. I'm glad to be a board member there and a donor. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the, the day of empathy was just one of those crazy ideas that, that we had at the dream core and, and, uh, now it's an institution. And over the many years now of, uh, days of empathy, uh, do any stories particularly stand out to you? Well, I mean, honestly, just, you know, how it got started. I mean, if I, I would have not, if you, if you had told me that year we would be in 30 or 40 States, we had no budget. Um, we had no, I mean, I think a lot of people think because I'm relatively well known um, by being on TV and stuff that somehow the Dream Corps is just rolling in you know tens of millions of dollars. You know, we have a, a budget like the ACLU or Greenpeace or something, a hundred million dollar <laughs> budget. I mean, you know, uh, the entire time that we were fighting to pass the uh, First Step Act, I think we may have raised a million dollars. I mean, I mean, maybe all total. Uh, I mean, you know, that's a lot of money. Uh, but when you think about what we pulled off uh, working with our allies and, and stuff like that, um, I mean, not that much money at all. Like, you know, a fraction of a 
project budget for some of the bigger organizations. And so, um, you know, just the fact that for me, you know, the fact that it happened and also this year, the fact that, you know, even though with COVID we couldn't go everywhere, we still figured out some, some good technological Zoom type solutions and kept it going. I think that that's all, also a good thing. And so what brought you from DreamCore to reform after, after to the Reform Alliance? Well, you know, uh, it really comes back to Prince. Uh, Prince, uh, before he passed, had been such a strong supporter of my work at the Dream Corps. Yes, we code, green for all. Uh, we were, were quite close. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I was doing publicly, he was backing privately because he didn't want his name out there. Um, he really didn't believe in bragging on himself and, 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 uh, and, and getting a lot of attention for his charitable work. So I was kind of the public face of a lot of that. Well, when he, when he passed away, um, he and Jay-Z had, had, had become close. And uh, Jay-Z's team at Rock Nation reached out to me and said, hey, um, you know, you, sh- you should be, be over here with us. Um, let's, let's make sure that, um, you know, you've got, you know, some support and love and protection and all the things that you need when you're running around trying to make change. And about the time that that was happening, or very shortly after that, uh, Meek Mill, uh, who at that time was not represented by Rock Nation, but was close to Rock Nation, um, got sent back to to prison for two years. It was you know, supposed to go back for two years because he had popped a wheelie, having been on a probation for 15 years with no new crimes. And just, I think, shocked Jay-Z. I think it shocked Desiree Perez, who's now the CEO over there, but it's always really been one of the big bosses over there. And so we joined forces with you know, Mike Rubin, and a few other people and fought like hell to get Meek Mill out and expose the fact that the judge was pretty corrupt, that the initial charges even 10 years back had been fabricated and got him completely exonerated, not just off, not just out of prison, but no criminal record, you know, not on probation, not on parole, no record. And Jay-Z said that he wanted to honor what Meek had said. Meek said we should go from Meek Mill to millions um, because there's so many more people who were impacted. And once Jay-Z said that, and he said he wanted to, um, you know, back Meek Mill up on it, and Michael Rubin said he wanted to back Meek Mill up on it. I mean, I looked at the Dream Corps, and I looked at, at Cut 50. I said, these are, you know, pretty sturdy operations. But if Jay-Z and, and Meek and, and Rubin and others are going to try to stand up something brand new, you know, I've built, you know, four or five successful social impact organizations. Um, let me go and help, because uh, I know how to do it. And it's hard to find people who know how to do it at that scale and who already you know, believe in all the stuff and know all the, the players. And um, so I went over, you know, I was just, always said I was a startup CEO. I never planned to be the CEO forever, but, you know, you know I knew I was going to need to put in a good one, two or three years to get it up and running. And um, uh, ultimately brought Jessica over there uh, to, you know, help build it out. And, uh, you know, the Dream Corps has continued to grow. Cut 50 has become... Dream Core Justice with a, a great new leader over there. And so all of a sudden yeah, we got good, kind of two. My good friend, Yanos. Yanos. Yeah, exactly. And he's, he's, he's unbelievable. So it's almost, we kind of wound up with two for the price of one. So now we got <laughs> Dream Core Justice and Reform Alliance, uh, both with slightly different missions, but, uh, you know, a lot of love for each other. And, um, you know, I've done 25 years, man. Uh, 19, January 1, 1996. 
where we, when we started the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights in Oakland, California, to sue cops and coordinate litigation against you know, brutal police officers, then to uh, colorofchange.org right after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, um, I believe 2006, and then Green for All, trying to get you know, solar jobs in the hood in 2008, and then rebuild the Dream, you know, Dream Corps in 2011, and then now Reform Alliance, um, and you know, skipping a few along the way. You know, you know five uh, highly impactful social change organizations over a 25-year period, um, thousands of jobs created, dozens of bills passed, tens of thousands of people freed. Um, you know, I feel like my soul is rested. Um, you know, there are people who might criticize some of the choices that I've made, some of the things, you know, some, how I've done some stuff, some stuff I've done. Uh, that's all good. That's all fair. You know, I'm, a, I'm an open book. I, I live on live television. Everybody can see every, you know, uh, emotion, every, you know, thing I've ever said is all out there. Most people get a chance to, to think <laughs> privately. I, you know, every, every feeling, feeling I have is, is recorded forever and put up on YouTube for people to uh, evaluate. That's perfectly fine. But my soul is rested. Um, I, I, only reason I didn't do more, um, or didn't do better is because I just didn't know how to, uh, whatever mistakes I've made, it came out of trying hard, um, and maybe not knowing the best way all the time. Uh, but I, I never, I never made a mistake from not putting it all on the line, you know, not, not, you know, my, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I say what I think I'm willing to take risks. Um, and my, my soul is rested. And I hope the next 25 years I can uh, continue to make an impact. Um, thinking now, maybe um, is there something I can do on the, the private sector side? Is, are there, uh, you, know, is, you know, do we need some kind of fund created to, to move capital? Um, I've, I've moved Congress enough times. Should we should I try to get Wall Street and Silicon Valley to move some capital someplace? I've been thinking about stuff like that. Um, I, I, I love uh, CNN. I also want to build out my own. Uh, you know, maybe digital uh, media, kind of like stuff you're doing. Um, you know, there's there's a lot more to get done. But uh, what I would say about my journey so far is that um, I can't find a year or a quarter or a month or really even a week in that whole 25 years where I wasn't trying to do something uh, to help our communities. And I hope I never do find that week. I think uh, one of the big swings you took was a show that I really loved, The Redemption Project, uh, which was a CNN show that highlighted restorative justice conferences between people who did harm and people who were harmed. How did that show come about? Well, you know, it's very hard to get a primetime show. Very, very difficult, especially a primetime TV show that has not, quote unquote, innocent people. You know, that's always been the thing. You know, innocent people or nonviolent people or that kind of stuff. I said, I wanted to do a show where people actually did bad stuff. And now it's 10 years later, 15 years later, or 20 years later. Where are they now? And, and what about the people who really want to make amends? What about the, the people who have been hurt, who want more information, who want some closure? That story never gets told. Most of these true crime things, you know, it's like, who done it? Well, what, do you, what, what happens when you, when you know who did it and it's 20 years later? I wanted to do that show. And I'll always appreciate CNN for giving me the green light to do it. And I'll always appreciate the Dream Corps for making it available for free. You can go to the dreamcore.org and, and just search for um, Redemption Project. 
and you can watch it yourself for free. And all you got to do is sign up. And, um, and you had eight stories in prime time in uh, Anthony Bourdain's old slot uh, where people really had done bad stuff, you know, vehicular homicides and, you know, shooting cops. I mean, like really bad stuff. And yet when you walk through those stories, you get to the end of that hour. You know, they, they, they don't all end with a happy ending and a hug, but you see something. You see some humanity, you see some grace, you see some strength. And the hope is you, you turn the TV off and you think, geez, if those people can sit down and have that conversation across that much pain, what conversation can I not have in my own life with my ex-spouse or estranged relative or, you know, uh, you know, friend from high school who's on the wrong side of politics for me now? Um, you know, because what we wanted to try and do is just to show Olympic level performance, literally Olympic level performances of grace and mercy and, and moral courage. Um, and look, it wasn't a, a big rating success. Uh, we were up against the last seasons of <laughs> Game were, of Thrones. <laughs> you were up against the largest television show probably in the history yeah. of television. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, put, they, they put us up against Game of Thrones. That wasn't necessarily the best placement for us. But <laughs> it, 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 it still aired and uh, it's still available online. And, um, and again, you know, one of the things, you know, when you're in public life, you get a lot of critics. You get a lot of people who, you know, look past 99 things you did that they may actually have liked and they'll focus on the one thing that you said or did that they don't like and that's kind of where they, they stay. But I will say that there are not that many people in cable television or television period that given the opportunity to have a, a show would say, let's do that show. <laughs> let's go into <laughs> prisons. Let's find the people who've done stuff you cannot um, wave to one side. You know, this is bad stuff. And find a way to show the human side of the person who did wrong and the person who was wronged and to leave you feeling some sense of hope for humanity. Let's do that show. I could have done a travel show. I could have done, you know, a show where I, you know, interview celebrities. I could have done anything. I mean, CNN, um, that's the show I wanted to do. That's the show that I did. And um, like I said, my, my soul is rested. Um, it, it's, it's a good feeling to be in my 50s at this point. And, you know, uh, warts and all, uh, praise and critics, you know, in large numbers on, on all sides. But to go back and be able to say, well, you know, would I have not tried to get Donald Trump to sign a criminal justice reform bill, given the opportunity to possibly get him to not attack our issue for four years or maybe eight? Um, yeah, I would do, I, there, there's no scenario in which I wouldn't have tried. Now, luckily we, you know, we actually signed the damn thing. <laughs> uh, and luckily <laughs> there's, you know, 16,000 people have come home early so far. And luckily as a result, he did not attack criminal justice. He did a bunch of other terrible stuff, but you know, we kind of took the gun out of his mouth, the weapon out of his mouth, which meant that the Republicans, when they, they actually divided fighting among themselves, should they close more prisons as opposed to being united to, to open more first time in my adult lifetime and the Democrats got stronger on our issue. Um, so luckily, uh, you know, and then I'm a Democrat. So also he didn't get reelected either. <laughs> so luckily, uh, uh, just from an objective point of view, we got, you know, we kept this issue viable and, and bipartisan with stronger democratic and rep Republican support, you know, at the cost of, you know, a couple of selfies <laughs> uh, that people want to criticize me for, uh, plus 16,000 people home, plus an additional 70,000 people home 
um, at the state and local level, you know, compassionate relief during COVID, uh, which you know we opened the door to, to do all that through the reform, uh, through the first step back process. Hey, look, I mean, I understand, you know, people don't like, don't like, you know, the picture. They don't like, you know, Donald Trump kind of showing up you know, to take advantage of the issue as they see it. But I would rather have Donald Trump with the biggest megaphone in the world talking about Miss Alice Johnson than to have George H.W. Bush talking about Willie Horton. Uh, I mean, if, if, if the Republicans are going to talk about this issue and they're going to for 30 years, it was Willie Horton. And if you let black people out of prison, they're going to kill your grandmother. And for, we finally got a Republican who actually said, no, I'm going to let a black grandmother out of prison and brag about it. Now, again, you know, I, I didn't vote for him. But uh, when, I, when you look back over your career, you know, you know, at my age, in my stage of life, um, you know, being willing to take risks with my TV career, being willing to take risks with, you know, the advocacy um, with the hopes that it'll turn out. Well, hey, I didn't I didn't get an Emmy. <laughs> I didn't get great ratings. But I'm proud of what we did, um, you know, uh, with the first step back. People said, well, it should have been bigger. It should have been more. I, I agree. That's why we call it the first step back, not the last step back. At least we, we tried. You know, at least we got something. Um, we were all in a very bad situation. So, you know, what I would say is that um, the Redemption Project is one of many things. Um, uh, you, know, you know, like I said, maybe we could have gotten better ratings. I don't know. I told them maybe I should have begged them not to put me up against Game of Thrones. I don't know. But, um, you know, you, you, you do, you, you play the cards that are in your hands and you play them to help the people who don't have shit and you keep, and, and you, you wait for the, for the next card to be dealt and you play it again. You, you keep doing that and eventually, hopefully you make a difference. As someone who like the most popular writing I've ever done was about Game of Thrones. And, uh, I still watched every, every episode of the Redemption Project and then would watch Game of Thrones later because, uh, it meant so much to me at yeah, I thought it was a great show and uh, really glad, glad that it happened. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that people say, you know, we both worked pretty hard uh, to pass the First Step Act. And I think one of the things people say is that they're frustrated with it, giving that it might have given Trump an issue to win the election on. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, look, I understand it. And um, but you, know, you got to look at it from the other, other side as well. Um, number one. If the only way that Democrats can win elections is to make sure that people who are locked up don't get any help, if that's the key to your success is to make damn sure that no Republican helps anybody behind bars, especially not a Republican like Donald Trump, just basically take 180,000 people who are in federal prison and throw them under the bus and be willing to abandon them for four or eight years just to make sure that you don't have to deal with Donald Trump. There's something wrong with your party. There's something wrong with your strategy. Donald Trump did so many dumb things and so many things that, you know, are, are just inexcusable that, that would get you thrown out of kindergarten. You can't figure out a way to beat him without abandoning people who, by the way, my constituency, our constituency, the people we care about who are locked up in prison, they can't vote. They can't march. They're locked up. They can't tweet. They're locked up. So you're just going to tell me that the only way we can get Donald Trump out of there is to make sure that the most vulnerable people get zero help for four or eight years. Tell them to wait for four or eight years. I just don't, A, I think that's a terrible strategy for, for the Democratic Party, but also I just don't think black people are stupid. A big part of it was, well, now the black people are going to all go vote for Donald Trump. Well, maybe some will, maybe some won't. But in general, you're telling me that you think black people 
who have gone from property to the presidency in this country, un- no parallel in human history, are, 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 are not sophisticated enough to realize that you know a, a decent bill on criminal justice, a decent bill on opportunity zones, and some help for black colleges is probably not enough to make up for, I don't know, 8,000 other things. Uh, I mean, you're, I just don't think black people are that stupid. And it turned out that black people were not that stupid. We actually were able to do two things. We were able to get the Democratic and Republican parties to be both better on the issue, which is better long term. And we were also able uh, to mobilize black voters uh, to, to have a change of government. So I just had a, a lot more contempt uh, for the sacrifice 180,000 people in federal prison for eight years if you have to approach, because I, I thought it was despicable and also not necessary. Um, but I also just had a lot more confidence, uh, at least in the black community, uh, to, to figure this thing out. And so, uh, but here's what I will say. And easy. Here's what I will say. Uh, you know, driving up to, you know, the Trump White House, uh, knowing about the kids at the border, knowing about the Muslim ban, knowing about whatever, you know, 27 outrages were, were happening that day and getting out of the Uber and walking into a building where I had worked, walked to a building where my friends had worked and, you know, seeing people who, you know, some of whom I have, you know, respect and regard for, uh, but a lot of whom uh, I didn't, <laughs> um, you know, you, you got to swallow hard and you got to sit down and you got to think, hold on a second. If I'm not willing to go in here, and I damn near lived at the Obama White House after I left the, <laughs> I mean, you know, damn near lived there after, even after I left, talking about criminal justice reform when I liked the president. If I'm going to say, you know what, screw it, let all these people suffer in prison, let both parties get worse on the issue. I'm just personally not going to do this. And was I really about the issue during the Obama administration, or was it about me having access to a president that I, that I love and worship? And being a part of something that is historic, first black presidency, that kind of thing. Or was it really about the people? And I'd say to myself, you know what? Now, everybody can make their own choice. Other people who are just as, as committed to criminal justice made other choices and bless them. But for myself, I said, there's no way. And I also having worked in the White House and knowing the power of that building, there's no way I'm going to leave that, th- those doors locked for four to eight years from people with our perspective. If I can go in there and get one person out let alone thousands out, I felt I had a responsibility to do it. And other people saw it differently. But uh, I, I don't know. You know. Do facts matter? At the end of the day, we passed the bill and Trump didn't get reelected. Yeah, that's definitely a fair point. Um, we have a new administration now, and I think a lot of people are still kind of not sure because of President Biden's history with mass incarceration. Uh, kind of having been involved in a lot of this stuff and knowing a lot of the players, what do you see as possible now? Depends on how hard we fight. Um, you know, I love Biden. I worked for Biden when I was in the Obama administration. Uh, he had a, the, the middle class task force. I was on that task force. Um, I was responsible for $80 billion in clean and green uh, economic stimulus money. Uh, and he was a guy ultimately that we reported up to. Love the guy, respect the guy. He was never particularly progressive on these issues, you know, and I think, frankly, and here's the here's the ironic thing. The fact that Donald Trump tried to eat the Democratic Party's cookie on this issue made the Democrats stronger on the issue. 
don't forget <laughs> that even in 2008, 2012, the Democrats weren't running on criminal justice reform. Uh, President Obama was not running on criminal justice reform. Uh, the issue wasn't at that level. That was you know, before Black Lives Matter. Um, I mean, having a black guy at that point running for office on criminal justice reform might have been a deal killer with the American people. Uh, but the fact that we got to the point where even Donald Trump was reaching over trying to eat that cookie made the Democratic Party a lot stronger or let the Democratic Party get a lot stronger. So you have people like Cory Booker, who has always been you know, better on this issue than most people. He was able to go out there and be for legalizing marijuana. And nobody even blinked. It wasn't even a controversy. Can you imagine if Obama had come out in 2012 and said, I'm for, 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 for marijuana? But that's how far the Democrats were able to move because we moved the Republicans, even the Trump Republicans, you know, in the right direction. And so, you know, I put that out there because, you know, hopefully you know, people who listen to your podcast, I think, are pretty sophisticated people. And it's one thing to jump up and down about, you know, abstract theory, like, well, you know, we have to resist everything. If you do anything legitimates him, then you're a part of all of his crimes and all that stuff. Yeah. You know what? We're not playing tic-tac-toe here. This is three-dimensional chess. Getting both political parties better on the issue, even during the Trump period, especially during the Trump period, makes it much more likely for us now that we're in a different period with a Biden to say, hey, you guys got to do at least as much as Trump. <laughs> uh, you got to pass a bill at least as good as Trump. Uh, and if they don't, then, you know, that, that tells you something. But, um, you know, now the Trump administration uh, on the De Department of Justice side rolled back a lot of positive reforms that I hope that, you know, Biden's DOJ will put back in place. Um, and Obama did pass, um, a, you know, a couple of, of, of bills, you know, the, the Fair, Fair Sentencing Act or whatever. So, uh, uh, you know, early on, he, he did get some wins uh, uh, legislatively and administratively. So you got to give the Obamas credit in the second term. And once the country was even slightly ready, Obama leaned forward and got stuff done. So give him his credit. Um, then, even though Trump rolled back stuff administratively, he did uh, uh, it, uh, legislatively and politically advance the issue. And so now Biden can look back at both the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And so you had two in a row that passed bills that were significant. Um, and, you know, the guy that you were serving with had administrative reforms that were significant. So you got to do more. But just to be clear, we're stronger now on this issue and in a better position to get Democrats to act right because last time we got Republicans to act right. A couple of quick media-related questions. Uh, one of my biggest frustrations as an advocate is media coverage of criminal justice issues. I feel like most of the major news networks have you know, what seemed to be hundreds of former prosecutors and law enforcement experts on call and very few criminologists, defense attorneys, or directly impacted people. Uh, you've been an exception in speaking up for criminal justice causes on kind of the major uh, news networks. How can our movement be better represented in big media? Well, um, I think that's coming. Uh, you know, television is the last stop on the train. Uh, for legitimation, for lack of a better term. Uh, I mean, you can write a bunch of books um, and still never have been on television. Uh, you can have a, a great podcast or radio show or be a, a, an incredibly beloved professor um, or researcher or scientist and still never have been on television. Uh, it's, it's the last stop on the train often 
after you've done a bunch of other stuff, um, which doesn't mean you have some you know young people that start out in TV, but in terms of people who are cause related and that kind of stuff, usually it's the last stop on the train. And so I do think that um, as the country gets more conscious of these issues and causes that, um, and frankly, as there's more television to be done, um, the streaming services, you know, there's a lot more TV to be done. I do think you're going to start seeing people climbing those ranks now. I would love for, you know, a major cable outlet like CNN or an MSNBC or even a Fox News um, to have someone on who's formerly incarcerated. And that's a part of their of their credentials as to why they're there. Um, I think that would be yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, because, I, would because, wa- I, mean, I would watch that network a lot more just because of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but you think about it, it's like, you know, everybody talks about, you know, what's going on in jails and stuff like that and prisons and, you know, somebody gets arrested, et cetera. And you, like you said, you hear from the prosecutors and the defense attorneys, you never hear from the people who actually have gone through that system. And uh, so what happens is you wind up with a lot of facts, but you don't wind up with a lot of truth. I think professionals uh, are very good at finding and presenting facts, but they're not good at delivering truths. Amanda Gorman, that young black poet from the Biden uh, swearing in, who's now a household name, she delivered a lot more truth in her short few minutes than most of us deliver in a year. And we'll deliver a lot of facts, a lot of data, um, talk about a lot of events, but getting to the, the, the truth up underneath all of that, the emotional truth, the historical truth, the, the lived truth, that's not something we do very well. And people, but people who have lived experience um, often get to that a lot quicker and a, a lot more reliably. And so, um, you know, hopefully someday. I remember you were doing an interview. Uh, you know, you get a lot of criticism, uh, you know, a lot of it, I think, unfairly. Uh, you know, and you were doing an interview with uh, Jared Kushner. Uh, and I was talking with our mutual friend, Alex, and uh, there was some backlash. And I remember remarking to Alex how smart the interview seemed to me, because if you had gone in guns blazing and putting Kushner on the defensive, uh, you might not have gotten answers to a lot of the questions about, for instance, Saudi Arabia, because he's a person who doesn't do very many interviews. Uh, can you kind of talk about, can you kind of talk about, you know, that you know, kind of this, you know, there are people like Chris Wallace who go in hot and people go into the interview with, you know, that understanding, but a lot of people, you know, are very reluctant to do interviews and it's very hard to get them to talk. Can you talk about strategy or how you look at that in terms of sure. interviewing? Yeah. You know, you're the first person to ever asked me that question, um, you know, in this context. And I really appreciate you, you. I think people think I'm just an idiot. <laughs> like I, like I'm just like some really dumb, gullible person who just does dumb, gullible things. Or maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a sellout. You know, I'm somebody who sold my soul to Satan. I mean, just, you know, it's really, it's, re- it's remarkable. Um, you know, for instance, like during the First Step Act, I was a volunteer board member at the Dream Corps with Cut50. I wasn't drawing a salary. In fact, I was one of the major donors to the Dream Corps at that time because we didn't have that much money, you know, saying you want to you know, work with Republicans and that kind of stuff. You're not, you know, the, the liberal donor community is not going to be that, that generous to you. And so not only was I, did I not get paid <laughs> a penny uh, to pass the first step back, not even a salary, nothing. Um, I actually, you know, dumped a bunch of my own savings into the Dream Corps to keep it going because, you know, we were getting punished by, you know, funders pulling out because they were so outraged that we would even consider working with the Trump administration on something. So, uh, but why would I do that? I did that because 
uh, first of all, I was pretty sure that, you know, the election wasn't going to come down to a criminal justice bill um, and that we could actually make both parties stronger as we did. Um, and I also felt like I owed something to the people who were locked up and had no advocate who was willing to go in that building publicly. But, you know, same with, 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 with Jared. Jared had never done a television interview. Never. Nobody knew what his voice sounded like. They, they just saw his face and they, knew, they recognized him. They had never heard his voice. And we were working together on this bill. And so uh, I asked him if he would come to this conference that, that CNN was doing, which wasn't even a TV show, it was just a conference, um, and sit down, let's talk about the bill. I thought that would be good to get him, you know, more used to talking about these issues publicly. Uh, also get him more on the record. I mean, it was clear that he was, um, you know, supporting it, but I wanted to you know, give him the opportunity to be more on the record to show more people that this was a real bill that could really, you know, get support. Um, and also, I thought if he had a halfway decent experience, then he probably would talk to a bunch of other reporters. Now, in our world, if you want to have a tough interview, you put in a, a Chris Cuomo or you put in a Jake Tapper and you better eat your Wheaties because those guys are no joke and they will kick your ass. Um, but if you want to have a tough interview, you don't put in Van Jones. Like, you know, I interview Oprah and Jay-Z, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I do softer interviews and, and my interview style is really just trying to help the viewer better understand the person, not agree with them, not disagree with them, not hold them accountable, but help them really get some insight into who this human being is. And so in keeping with my interview style, if you ever watch the Van Jones show or anything of the podcast, or whatever, that's how I am. Um, the only person I ever really went off on in an interview was Ted Cruz, um, you know, uh, uh, during a crossfire, uh, taping, you know, almost 10 years ago. Uh, and I felt terrible about it. So I never did that again. I just lost it. It just, it was just driving me crazy. Um, and so, uh, but what you put your finger on, nobody noticed because he was comfortable because I wasn't coming in to kick his butt because I was teasing him, you know, I was being soft with him when we got to, talking about the murder of Khashoggi, he actually got put himself on record saying stuff he had never said before. He admitted that he was still in contact uh, with, you know, the leadership over in Saudi Arabia, that he was giving them advice about how to handle the situation. Uh, he, 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 he literally was, was coughing up unbelievable amounts of information about the relationship between the Trump White House and the Saudi uh, royal family. But everyone was so outraged that I was just being nice and 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 warm toward him. They totally missed the point <laughs> that I had gotten a, a major White House official to not only come and talk about criminal justice reform, which nobody expected the Trump administration to embrace, but also to give invaluable information about what was going on at the level of global politics and didn't have to kick anybody's ass to do it. And so, you know... Uh, I, I, you know, I, I recognize it as a public figure, somebody who's raised my hand and put myself in, 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 uh, in those chairs, people have the right to criticize me. They have the right to say, Hey, I would have done that differently. What's he doing? He's driving me nuts. Why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he do that? All I ask is if you're going to give me an F on my rhetoric, you didn't like my style. You didn't like my tone. Why did you smile and take that picture? Why did you just... You don't, why did you say something nice about the president here? Why did you, you know, say, fine, give me an F on my rhetoric. Give me an F minus on my rhetoric. That's fine. You, you're perfectly fine to do that. But can you also grade my results? That's all. 
if you give me an F on my rhetoric, that's great. But remember, I'm only on, t on, on TV, you know, a, a few minutes a day, um, a few hours a week. The rest of the time, six, seven days a week, I'm working on justice issues. And on those justice issues, you know, we now have more than two dozen bipartisan criminal justice bills that between the Reform and the Dream Corps, we have passed two dozen bipartisan bills, tens of thousands of people out of prison. Both political parties better on the issue. Um, and then even with Jared, uh, like you said, you know, that interview, which, which you know, some people criticized, there was stuff in there that, you know, nobody else was able to get on earth out of the Trump White House at that point. And so I understand the criticism. I'll take it all day long. I know it hurts for people to see a black guy, you know, smiling with a white guy inside the Trump White House. And we've been trained in white supremacy. So if you see a black guy smiling with, with a white guy, you assume that the black guy is a sucker, that the black guy is being taken advantage of, the black guy is an idiot and not know what he's doing, and the white guy is super smart and is getting over on the black guy. We've all been taught that. Black people, white people. If you see a black man smiling, it's because he's an idiot. But just consider that maybe every now and again, the black guy is smiling because he's winning. Because he's winning. I think they... Didn't they used to call that a crocodile smile or something like that in the old yeah. days? I don't like, know. Yeah. Like, listen, uh, just consider maybe sometimes the black guy knows what he's doing. Maybe sometimes the black guy's <laughs> smiling because he's actually getting something done. He's going into, the, into a situation, sitting across from the master of the art of the deal and actually getting something that he wants done. You know, it, it, it's the, the level of white supremacy and racism on the left and even among some of you know black activists is so blatant that you can't even see it but why is it always the case that the black guy is presumed to be the sucker maybe there's no sucker in the picture at all maybe it's a fair deal or maybe the white guy's a sucker how about that maybe that consider i'm not saying what's right i'm saying what's wrong everybody has their own right to their opinion but if you never considered that maybe the white guy's a sucker or maybe there's no sucker at all maybe it's a fair deal then you might want to ask some questions about the racism of that point of view, no matter what color your skin is. This year, I'm asking people if there are any criminal justice related books they might recommend to others. Do you have any favorites? Well, you know, I always, you know, lift up Shaka Senghor's book, uh, Writing My Wrongs. Um, uh, you know, I, I still think that that book should be required reading. Uh, Brittany Barnett, uh, came out with a book. I don't remember the name of it, but it's brilliant and beautiful. And I think Amazon says one of the best books of the year, um, which is very hard. I mean, they they you know, have tens of twenty, hundreds of thousands of books. They picked out Brittany Barnett's book to to lift up. Um, uh, so I would just probably stick with those two. Yeah, Shock is uh, my Michigan brother, so you know we both <laughs> we both got out the same year. So <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. he went on to write a New York Times bestseller, but you know whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's um, so, um, this is, as I mentioned, my 100th episode, and I have to indulge, indulge myself for once. I have to ask this question. You know, I've told you this before, but I'm pretty much a lifelong Prince fan, and I know that you all were close, and I'm eternally jealous of that fact. Uh, but <laughs> is there any story you can share about, you know, your own love or experience with this amazing artist as, you know, someone who truly respects and admires him a great deal? Yeah, he changed my life. He changed my life. Um, you know, it's so ironic that we met when 
the right wing media was attacking me all the time, saying I was, you know, you know, too too close to the the berserkly <laughs> Bay Area <laughs> left, and um, and and using uh, those fights against me. And I've, and I've never apologized for those fights. I never, you know, the, the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. We closed five abusive youth prisons. Uh, we reformed the San Francisco Police Department. Got a horrible cop fired when it was hard. And we were going up against Democrats, by the way. We were coming from the left, going up against Democratic governors and Democratic mayors. Um, uh, and so uh, Fox News and Glenn Beck and a lot of people went back and, and, and took those positions and those quotes and used them just to beat the hell out of me um, because you know, I was you know, proudly uh, on the far left as a young person. I'm proud that you know I came out of Yale Law School and didn't join the establishment. I joined the counter-establishment. Um, but, you know, when the heat got too hot and I decided to leave the Obama White House under fire for being a leftist, uh, it was Prince that caught me when I fell. Uh, it was Prince that reached out to me and invited me to Paisley Park and sat with me and counseled me. And, uh, you know, he said, um, you know, I'd been out, uh, I mean, uh, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a month. Uh, and he had me over, to, you know, over to Paisley Park and, you know, the kind of famous legendary uh, recording studio, um, performance space uh, and home uh, for Prince um, near the Twin Cities. And he looked at me and said, you know, you look sad. I said, <laughs> I said yeah, <laughs> pretty good job at the White House working for President Obama. And now I don't. And uh, he said, hey, way worse stuff than that's going to happen to you. I said, what? He says, well, I don't know you, but you seem like you're somebody who cares about justice and in the community. I said, well, I do. And he goes, yeah, I can tell. He says, well, way worse stuff than that happens to guys like you. He says, I wouldn't worry about it at all. He says, here's what you do. He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to stay there for two weeks. I want you to pray. So when you come back, sit down with me in a blank piece of paper and you write down everything you think needs to be done, uh, including just almost like you were still working in the White House, just everything you think needs to be done. And I will help you do it. I'll help you do it. Uh, and it and it was a lifeline for me. Uh, now it took me a year. I mean, I went to Jerusalem and I did all that, but it took me a year really to get my feet back under me. Um, but I had that little star in my pocket, that little bit of hope uh, that if I figured out anything to do, if I you know beat the depression, beat you know just the the, the shame and the shock of all of it, and you know all of the the stuff that I went through, if I could just get past all that, I at least had somebody in my corner. And he stayed in my corner. And, I mean, told you know, a week before he died. Um, you know, last, you know, last time I saw him, he was in Oakland, and um, I brought some y- young activists from the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, group to meet him, shake his hand. They said, "Oh, we're really honored to meet you." And he goes, "I'm honored to meet you." And um, I was, you know, getting them out of there so he could get back to enjoying himself. And he said, "Van," and I said, "Yes." He said, "Van." I said, "Yeah." He said, "Bring the boys to Paisley." He'd been begging me for years to bring my sons out to Paisley Park and, um, you know, was, you know, school and sports. And it's just, you know, how are you going to, it just, we, I, I never prioritized. I figured I had, you know, 30 years and he said, bring the boys to Paisley. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll do it. I'll do it this summer. Um, but you know, obviously it didn't happen, but even then he's thinking, you know, I want, you know, for you and your family to get a chance to experience something that, you know, very few people are ever going to experience, you know, to be, you know, in Paisley Park. Now you can go there, it's a museum. I'll tell you, it's not the same. 
uh, it, it can't be the same. You know, it's just the, re- the way it is. You know, they, they had to change it to make it accommodate, you know, tens of thousands of people coming through there. But, um, you know, he cared about the people in his life. And whether you're talking about Janelle Monet or Alicia Keys or any, I mean, he cared about the people in his life. Damaris Lewis, so many people who will tell you they would not be where they are and or they wouldn't know what they know if it hadn't been for Prince. And, um, you know, so uh, I wish you could have met him. Uh, you know, when he got the Webby Award, he said, uh, everything you think is true. Uh, what he was talking about was just the power of, of, of imagination and the power of intention, which he talked about all the time. But uh, I can say for sure, every good thing you think about Prince is true. That's uh, thanks so much for that. Um, you know, I, I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked, but did not? Well, look, man, I can't tell you how much I admire you and how much I appreciate you and your journey and, and your, your, the process that you've gone through and the stance that you take and the fact that you continue to use your voice to stick up for what you believe in. Um, and that you're willing to, you know, take some hard shots, you know, on behalf of people out here who, you know, like myself are, you know, controversial. Um, and, you know, when you disagree with me, you let me know. And when you agree with me, you let me know. And I appreciate that. And so I don't have, uh, I, I don't think you left out any questions except just giving me the opportunity to tell you, you know, I hope the next hundred are just as great as the last hundred, if not better. And we need you. Uh, your voice matters. Um, and, you know, this community uh, just, you know, without you would be a much uh, less, we have a lot less integrity. We have a lot less courage. Uh, we have a lot less wisdom. Uh, and I'm glad that we don't have to contemplate that because hopefully you'll be here for at least a hundred more episodes, if not 200. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all your support and, and mentorship over the years. And uh, really ta- thanks for taking the time to do this. All right. Well, uh, to be continued, have, have me back on 200. <laughs> Absolutely. Will do. Thanks so much. All right. Peace. Peace. And now my take. Usually I do a rant here, but this week, instead, I'm just going to say a lot of thank yous. Thank you to everyone who listens to the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks to Joel Barson, who was my first co-host when I started this adventure around four years ago and still remains one of my best friends. Thanks to Andrew Stein, without whom this podcast could absolutely not have ever existed and could not continue to exist. The amount of work he does to help make sure that this happens is incredible, and he deserves a lot, maybe the most, of the credit for us getting to 100 episodes. Thanks to Robert Alvarez, to Kate Summers, to Ann Crespo, and to Alex Mayo, who have all been volunteers and donated a lot of their time to this podcast. I also apologize to every single one of them as well. I'm generally pretty easygoing, but sometimes, unfortunately, they have all seen me when I am grumpy. Uh, so thanks to them for all the hard work, and apologies to all of them for any time I was uh, uh, a little short. Uh, thanks again to everyone who has listened over the years, to all the guests we've had. I really appreciate all of you, and this has been a really interesting journey. I, I can't tell you how many times I've met people across the country who come up to me and tell me they listen to the podcast, or who I've met on social media because of the podcast, or just, it's just a great, it's been a great way to build an interesting little community of criminal justice, uh, of supporters of criminal justice reform. And so I really do appreciate everyone who listens and who has been a part of this adventure. 
Uh, we're going to take a break for a few weeks and then we'll come back with a bunch of new episodes after that uh, to finish out season four. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or who have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and Espo for helping with our transcripts and Instagram and Facebook images, and Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to all 100 episodes of the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.